right, so before we begin chapter five, I wanna remind you that chapter four ended with a very strong command. And the reason I'm gonna remind you of that today is because you need to know that what chapter four just flows naturally right into chapter five, all right? And so before we get into chapter five, verse one, let's go back and let's read chapter four, verses 20 and 21. It says there, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment, and make no, um, let there be no doubts, this is a commandment, right? This is not descriptive, this is prescriptive. And this commandment we have from him that whoever loves God must also love his brother. I gotta believe that the elderly John around AD 90 to 94, as he's sitting in Ephesus and he's writing this letter to the Christian community, I gotta believe that he's filled with passion. Lord's, I mean, uh, John's been walking with the Lord now for decades. He's the last remaining apostle who's alive. All, of, all the other ones martyred for the faith. And he's there. Right, And he wants to, one of the things he's writing for is he wants to warn Christians against false teachers that are trying to come in like wolves and ravish and, and, and tear up the sheep. And so he's full of passion and he's still talking about love. The apostle of love still talking about love in this little letter. And I gotta believe that if he was here today and standing on this platform, that he would ask all of us, he would say, do you love God? And I hope we would answer, yes, <laughs> we love God. And then John would say, well, if you love God, then you must love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't have one without the other. You can't say, I love God, but then hate your brother or sister. You can't say, I love God, but I don't love this person. Loving God and loving others go hand in hand. Now, since there were no chapter breaks or verses in the original letter, you need to know, again, that chapter four flows into chapter five. In other words, chapter four, verse 21, connects very naturally with chapter five, verse one. All right, so right now, um, if you're looking at chapter five, verse one, can you say amen here? Okay, so here we go. Everyone who believes, I'm gonna define that word here in a moment. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the word Christ there, if you're brand new to all this, simply means Messiah, anointed one, speaking about the son of David, the descendant of David who would sit and rule over Israel and the world. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ Messiah has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And so like I said, once again we see the apostle of love. What is he doing? He's once again emphasizing the importance of love. I want you to check out the similarity between chapter four, verse 21 and chapter five, verse one. We'll put it up on the screen. Check out this similarity. He says, whoever loves God must also 
love his brother. And then in chapter five, verse one, everyone who loves the father, he's God, loves whoever has been born of him. Okay, who's been born of God? Well, his spiritual children, the spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. So what is John doing here? In essence, all he's doing is repeating in 5.1 what he already had written in chapter 4, verse 21. What's that? Love God and love his children. Very, very simple. One day a Pharisee asked Jesus, he said, which commandment is the greatest in the law? And the Lord answered really quick. Jesus said, quote, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then very interesting, Jesus says this, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, and so according to Jesus, here's the two great commands right here. Very, very simple. Love God and love others. So out of all the commandments that God has given us in his word, the two most important, love God, love others. And again, it's very interesting to me that Jesus said that the second commandment is like the first. So after telling us to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, commandment number one, he said, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as your Self. In other words, when it comes to loving God and loving others, ladies and gentlemen, both are so vital, they're inseparable. Both are so vital, you can't have one without the other. It's kind of like this sheet of paper right here. Commandment number one, God calls us to love him. We are to love God. Commandment number two, we are called to love others, love our neighbor as ourself. But these two commandments are so vital. Both of them are so vital. They're inseparable. They're like two sides of a single sheet of paper. You can't have one without the other. They're inseparable. And so what, what we're saying here is that somebody can't say all religiously and piously, I love God, but then when it comes to his or her neighbor, well, uh, don't really love that person. Love God, yeah, I love God. Mm, not so much, because that person hurt me. He hurt my feelings. He offended me. You don't know what he did to me. And so I'm having a struggle in my heart. I haven't been able to forgive him yet. By the way, don't ever fool yourself and let your fallen sinful heart or my fallen sinful heart say, I just can't forgive him. We can forgive. Does, do we feel like it ever? No. But we can forgive. But no, I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm not forgiving this person right now. We're not on speaking terms. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the word of God to the family at Calvary PSL this weekend. If you say you love God, you must love others. You cannot have one without the other. And John just said it in chapter 4, verse 20. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother or your sister, you're a liar. Now, look at verse 2. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. 
when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments, very important, his commandments are not burdensome. And so God's commandments, they're not burdensome to us. Now, generally speaking, I think John, when he talks about if you love God, keep his commandments, I think he's, I think he's talking about all of God's commands um, regarding the new covenant, right? And so we're not under the law, we're under grace, and um, we are called to keep God's commands that are pertinent under the new covenant. And so the point that John is trying to make, generally speaking, is that those commands aren't burdensome. But again, ladies and gentlemen, what are the two most important commands? We'll put them on the screen one more time. Love God, love others. That is not burdensome. In other words, loving God and loving others is not a drag. It's not too heavy where we can't do it. Listen, for the born-again Christian, and if you're a born-again Christian, that's a big, big if, but if you're a born-again Christian, loving God and loving others is actually a joy. It's a joy. Why? Because of the one who lives inside of you. Who lives inside of us? Go ahead and shout out his name. Yeah, the, the Holy Spirit, specifically, the third person of the Trinity. Jesus went up, and the Holy Spirit came down. And so the Spirit of God lives inside of us, and he encourages us. He enables us to love God and love people. And so regarding this, Chuck Swindoll wrote this. He said, when motivated by a love, here it is, enabled by the Spirit, the commands of God are not a burden but a joy they flow from a heart filled with love for the Father and love for his spiritual children. And so I am so glad that when Jesus went up, the Spirit came down. I am so glad that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. I am so glad that on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God fell upon those believers on that amazing day. And when he comes, whether it's 2,000 years ago or today, he enables and he encourages us to keep God's commands. So staying fit and healthy is important to me. I don't know what it is um, the last few years, but I kind of, you know, I can kind of see the finish line. Uh, I'm not saying I'm there yet, anywhere near there. Who knows when God is going to take us home, um, but I kind of can see it um, at my age better than, than I have in the past, and so I take um, fitness and I take health. Uh, it's, it's very, very important to me, and I make it my goal to train a few times a week. That's my goal. And what you need to know is that when I train, I lift weights, but I don't lift super heavy weights like some of you guys do. The reason I don't push those super heavy weights, quite frankly, at my age, I don't want to be crushed <laughs> by them. My, my, my chest is very, very important. I don't want it to be crushed underneath of those weights that some of you guys um, lift in the gym. But I do, I do work out, and I have a trainer who happens to be my son-in-law. And my son-in-law is, man, he is the most encouraging, positive person I have ever met in my life. D 
during our training, he's always there and he's constantly encouraging me, constantly telling me to go for it, constantly telling me that I haven't reached my limit yet. And he's there and he's encouraging, right? And he's the only person I know who can smile at me as I'm dying, right? So that's what he does. He has that gift of exhortation, that gift of encouragement. And you know what he does when I can't do another rep? I'm like right there and I can't do another one. He actually gets in there. So if I'm doing dips and I can't do another one, right? I'm stuck, right? He gets down there on his knees and he grabs my legs and he pushes me up and he helps me do those last five. I'm doing pull-ups, same thing. He grabs my legs. He's encouraging me at the same time and he's pushing me up. That's what he does. Now, with my trainer's help, I actually can finish the set strong. But without him, without my son-in-law, those last few reps would be so burdensome. Look again at verse three. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Here it is. And his commandments are not burdensome. And so good news, everybody. And the good news is this, that if you're a born-again Christian, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of you. And so God's commands aren't a drag. They're not too heavy. They're not burdensome. God's commands are actually a joy. And his two most important commands, love God and love others, that's actually a joy. Again, it's because the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us, and he's always there, and what does he do? He comes into our lives to encourage us, and he comes into our lives to enable us while smiling at us, right, to keep going. Ladies and gentlemen, hear me. You can finish life strong for Jesus Christ because of him who lives inside of you. And that's the key. That's the key. It's not you trying to do it in your own strength. It's Jesus, his spirit, living inside of us. But without him, man, it would be so much more difficult to keep God's commands. He's our power source. Check out what the risen Christ said to his disciples on the day of Pentecost, right right before Pentecost. He said, you will receive power. Can you guys say the word power? Just answer it in your heart. Do you have power in your life? Do you have that supernatural power? Are you getting the snot beat out of you this week? He said you will see power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Again, just answer it in your heart. The question I have for you today, do some soul searching, is does the Holy Spirit live inside of you? And if he lives inside of you, here's my question for you now. Are you being empowered by him on a regular basis? If you're not sure if you have a relationship with Jesus, if you don't know, if you know Christ, here's what you need to know, that he loves you, and he wants to live inside of you. He's real. And if you do know Christ, he wants to empower you. He doesn't want to just indwell you or live inside of you. He wants to empower you. He wants to encourage you. He wants to enable you to finish strong. 
to be a witness. The last word in the, in the verse, right? He's gonna be your power source that you will be my witnesses. And ladies and gentlemen, the greatest way we can be witnesses to the world, it's very, very simple. The best way you and I can be witnesses to the world, love God, love people. And the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to do just that. And guess what? When we start loving God and loving people, forgiving people, as we've been forgiven, instead of holding grudges and being bitter and being angry, can you imagine if God treated you the way you're treating that person that you won't forgive? If God treated you the way you are treating that person who you're mad at, you'd be in a whole heap of trouble. But good news, through the blood of Jesus Christ, he has freely forgiven you of all your sins, past, present, and future. All of them gone. Right? So let it go. Whoever that person is, whatever they did to you, listen, just like God says, I forgive you, just forgive them from your heart. Let it go. And then, after you've forgiven them, love them because they'll know we're Christians by our love. Look at verse four. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So what is John doing right now? Um, he's switching gears. He's leaving the topic of love. Now he's introducing a new topic. It's called faith, all right? There's more faith. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. That's a huge promise in God's word. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, two words, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so again, huge promise. John says under the inspiration of the Spirit that everybody who's been born of God overcomes the world. Born of God, all right, so what does that mean? Because I know some of you guys are new to church. Born of God simply means to be spiritually born into God's kingdom. In other words, in John 3, when Nicodemus, the religious guy, went to Jesus and started asking questions, Jesus got right to the point. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And so we all entered this physical earth. We all entered this kingdom of earth, so to speak, through a physical birth, a natural birth, the first birth. But if you wanna see the kingdom of God, if you wanna be part of the kingdom of God, Jesus said, you must. I don't care if you're religious or not, pious or not, irreligious, religious, secular, sacred, whatever, you must be born again. You need to experience a second birth. You need to experience a spiritual birth. And why is this so important? Because in verse four, everybody who's been born of God, born again, overcomes the world. Now, what is the world? We have to define that as well. And so we'll put that on the screen. The world is an organized system characterized by man's opposition to God, which is indicative of whose kingdom? Satan's kingdom, right? And so when the New Testament writers referred to the world, they weren't referring to the earth or God's beautiful creation. 
with all of its trees and rivers and valleys and mountains and flowers and animals. That's not what they were writing about at all. By the way, um, we're getting ready to go into the next six months, and it's the most beautiful time in Florida. I want to encourage you to get out and enjoy God's beautiful creation. I want to encourage you to go for a prayer walk. I want to encourage you to get on your bike and go with your um, um, uh, prayers in your heart, just letting God know how awesome he is and what an amazing creator that he is. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in a world where our kids are being taught that we evolved from apes and we don't know how we got here and God is being absolutely ignored. You and I are different. You and I have been born again, I hope, by the Spirit of God, and God is the creator, so we should get out there, right? We should get out there and see, see what God has done. It'll so encourage you. Some of you guys are so busy. You're like a, a hamster on that wheel and just busy, 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 busy. I want to encourage you to stop working for a little while and get outside. See God's creation. Sometimes I'm working really hard in my study, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh man, I can't do anymore. And so I'll take a break and I'll open up the front door and I'll walk outside and it's like a mole coming out of its cave. It's like, oh, the sunlight, ah, right? And I'll go out. But did you guys know sunlight actually uh, releases serotonin in your brain to help you be happy? And so get outside and look at the sun and the clouds and the, and the sky and the trees and all God's beautiful creation and let them know, God, you are amazing. This is awesome what you have done. You ought to do that. You ought to praise him for the fact that he's the creator, Romans chapter one, so that your and I, our foolish hearts are not darkened, which happens to lost people, by the way, when they don't recognize God as the creator. By the way, whether you're secular or sacred, um, everybody knows now the universe had a beginning. Okay, so if a universe had a beginning, there must be a beginner. And if the universe is space, time, and material, and it is an effect, it needs a cause. And the only cause for space, time, and material things is a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, intelligent, being his name is God and we should worship him for what he's done we should praise him for what he's done stop disbelieving and start believing stop doubting and start believing stop running your own life and submit to the God who knits you together in your mother's womb and give your life to him but I said all that to say that when the New Testament writers referred to the world, they were referring to an organized system that's characterized by man's opposition to God. They weren't talking about the beautiful earth. Now, earlier in his letter, John wrote this. Next screen, please. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he went on to say this. For all that's in the world, look at this. The desires of the flesh. This is our culture right now. Me, 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 me. I'm gonna sleep with whoever I wanna sleep with. I don't care who I hurt. I don't care, it's all about me. Desires of the flesh. Desires of the eyes. I want, want, want more, more, more. And the pride of life. Stop telling me what to do. I am the master of my own life. All of that is not from the Father, it is from the world. And so if that's your attitude, then you're part of that organized system 
of man's opposition to God, which is indicative of Satan's kingdom. But how do you overcome all of that? Here's how. Verse four, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so the way that we're born again is through our faith, our faith. And so what is faith? We'll define that. Look up the original Greek word, and it means to be persuaded of, but it doesn't stop right there. It also means to place confidence in, to trust, to rely upon, to entrust. The idea is there, entrust, commit your life. Now, nowhere in that definition do you see mere intellectual assent or just, everybody look at me, quote unquote, believing a list of facts. Now, faith includes intellectual assent, it has to, but it's not limited to that. It's not limited to believing, right? Believing or giving intellectual assent to certain facts about the Father, certain facts about the Son, certain facts about the Spirit, certain facts about the Bible, certain facts about theology. You know why it's not limited to that? True, genuine faith is not limited to giving intellectual assent to a list of facts. Do you know why? Because James 2.19 says the devils believe and tremble. And so it's more than that. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening right now, can you say amen, please? It's not knowing about Christ. It's knowing Christ. And that takes personal trust. And so I'm gonna illustrate this with a chair. I did this a couple years ago, but I wanna do it again because we have new people in our church. But here you have a nice looking chair. And here I am. Now, I'm standing here and I'm looking at this chair and I'm thinking, man, that's a good looking chair. And um, it looks like a strong chair. And I believe that this chair can hold me up. You know, I, I trust that that can happen. Okay, now, am I actually exercising genuine faith in this chair right now? Yes or no? You guys can answer out loud. No. I'm not trusting in the chair. And you know why? Because I'm still standing over here, which means I'm trusting in my own feet and my legs to hold me up. And I can say, I believe. Yes, brother, I believe. I believe in that chair. I can say that till my face gets red. But it's not real. It's not until I'm persuaded and so persuaded that I put my confidence in, my reliance upon, my trust in. It's not until I entrust or commit the weight of my body and lift up my feet off the ground that I can actually say in a biblical sense, I believe in this chair. Okay, so I wanna ask you guys some questions. You answer out loud and answer it like you mean it. Do you believe, I mean honestly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Yes. 
Do you believe that he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, and went to a cross to pay for your sins? Yes. Do you believe he rose again the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father? Yes. And are you so persuaded that you have put your personal confidence in, reliance upon, trust in, have you entrusted, have you committed your life to Jesus Christ? Here's what I'm asking. I want you to be real. But have you turned from your sins? I'm not saying you got to clean up your act so Jesus will accept you. No one can, you can't clean up your life. Only Jesus can clean up your life. But you got to be willing to let it go. You gotta be willing to turn away from that sin. Have you turned from your sin and given your life, committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have, you've been born of God. And you have victory over the world and you will have victory over the world. Not because you and I are so great, but because of the one who lives inside of us. He's given us the victory. And when you placed your faith in Jesus, whenever that was, did you know when you turned to him in repentance and faith that you became one with him? And did you know that you identified with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection? Buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. What is that right there? You guys tell me. It's what? Baptism. You see, that's what baptism symbolizes. Baptism is an outward um, re representation or an outward symbol of an inward reality of what happened to us when we got born again. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism's the first step after you get saved. Listen, after you get saved, there's nothing in the Bible at all about infant baptism. It's not there. The question is, do you want to follow a tradition of man or do you actually want to do what the Bible says? the question is have you been baptized help me out church family since you gave your life to Jesus and if you haven't we want to dunk you this Thursday in the name of the Father Son Holy Spirit listen some of you guys right now you're thinking should I do this should I do this it's time to get real with Jesus it's time to commit to him publicly and profess your faith publicly and so if you want to be baptized uh, go to our website, calvarypsl.com, click on next steps, click on baptism, do whatever it tells you to do there, somebody will call you. You gotta do it before midnight tonight so that we are ready, um, but we'll, we'll set it up for this Thursday and then whole church family, come on out so we can rejoice with those who are publicly identifying with Jesus uh, through the symbolic waters of baptism. This Thursday, November 2nd, 6.30 p.m. Now look at verse six again. This is he who came by water and blood. Okay, so this is important. Water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. He keeps saying this over and over. Water, blood, water, blood. The spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three 
agree. Now, the first time I read that years ago, I was like, what in the world is he talking about? But then I went to Bible college and I went to seminary and I took hermeneutics and I learned that when you interpret the Bible, you don't just make it say whatever you want it to say. No, no, listen, ladies and gentlemen, please hear me. Listen, we believe in the historical, grammatical interpretation of the scriptures, otherwise known as the literal method. What does that mean? Historical, that means you gotta actually go back and you gotta research the historical context before you lift out of the scripture its actual meaning. Don't put your meaning on the scripture, do the work and pull out the meaning of the scripture. And so after I did that, I found out that in John's day, there was a false teacher named Serenthus who came on the scene. And he taught that Jesus was the biological son of Joseph. I hope red flags are going up in your head right now. And Mary. And that the Christ spirit came upon him, look at this, after his baptism and departed <clears throat> from him near the end of his life. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that is a bold-faced lie. Jesus is not the biological son of Joseph. Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born of the Virgin Mary, and became man. It's called the incarnation. It's what Christmas is all about. At the incarnation, the eternal logos, the eternal word, God added a human nature to his divine nature and Jesus Christ from the incarnation on throughout eternity future will always be fully God, fully man, one person, two distinct yet inseparable natures, 100% God, 100% man. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the true Jesus, not some human being born of Joseph, who the Christ Spirit came on after his baptism and then left before the cross. This is what John is dealing with here. This is what he, one of the reasons that he's writing this letter. And if you're listening, say amen here. He's fully God from all eternity. And he became man at the incarnation. So now, He's fully God and fully man from the incarnation through his birth, through his life, through his watery baptism, through his bloody cross, through his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father and on and on and on forever, fully God and fully man. This is the truth this is why John is writing to protect the Christian community from the wolves that want to tell lies about Jesus Christ. And there's so many heresies today about Jesus. So I want to recommend the book again. We'll put it on the screen. The Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin, 6th edition, so you and I can be students to know who's the true Jesus, who's the false Jesus. Because ladies and gentlemen, if you get Jesus Christ wrong, you get everything wrong. You put your faith in the wrong Jesus, you're, you take your last breath, you're still in your sins. And you pay for your sins instead of Christ paying for your sins once and for all on the cross. And so, so, so important that we do this. And so to prove that Jesus was the Christ and is the Christ, the Son of the living God, John presented three infallible witnesses. 
And we'll put the first one on the screen right now. The first one is the Spirit. Now, the reason I put Christ's birth there is because I want to emphasize again to you guys that Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and became man. This is what Gabriel in Luke 1.35 told the Virgin Mary. She's like, how can this be? How am I going to give birth to the Messiah? I've never known a man. Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Okay, and so it's the Spirit of God, his testimony of in the incarnation of the Christ. Completely different than the false teacher Serenthus who says that the Christ Spirit comes on the man Jesus after his baptism. No, 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 that's not the truth. This is the truth. And, and here's what you need to know. The Spirit of God continues to give God's testimony through the Word of God and in our hearts that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Second witness is the water. And that refers to Christ's baptism. As Jesus is coming up out of the water, you guys remember this, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And so that's the empowerment for the man Jesus. Fully God, fully man, but he's giving us an example. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live this out. And so at his baptism, he comes up out of the water, and you remember there's a voice from heaven. This is the testimony of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we have another witness, the third witness, and that's the blood. That refers to Christ's crucifixion. Did you know in John chapter 12, right before he goes to his bloody cross, Jesus is distraught, and yet he says, Father, glorify your name. And there's another voice from heaven, another testimony of God. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And so it was the Father's will for the Son to go to the cross to shed his blood because nothing can wash away our sins except the blood of Jesus Christ. Three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. This is the testimony of God. And those three agree. Look at verse nine. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Verse 10, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. If somebody refuses to believe the testimony of God that God gives through the Holy Spirit, that God the Father gave at the baptism, as God the, the water, as God the Father gave um, at the cross, the blood, if you reject that, you're calling God a liar. Nothing's worse than that. Last two verses. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son of God does not have life and so I conclude with this I am so glad that if it's a big if but if you're a born again Christian 
You, you don't have to wait until you take your last dying breath <laughs> before you receive eternal life. If you're a born-again Christian sitting in this room right now, you have eternal life right now. And if you have the Son, you have life. But if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Not now, not ever. Unless you turn from your sins and you give your life to Jesus Christ today. Today can be the day of salvation. 